Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to episode number 39 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time we're going to finish our conversation about the right to a jury trial under Article 1, Section 14 of the Michigan Constitution. But first, your spoonful of legalese. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated by the time I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan constitutional scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal needs. Okay, here's a good case. Marshall Lasser versus Georgia, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2002, because it deals with parties who inadvertently waive their right to a jury trial. In October 1997, a law firm out of Oakland County known as Marshall Lasser filed a lawsuit and asked for a jury trial. But defendant Patricia May George failed to file a response to the lawsuit and subsequently received a default judgment against her. Sidebar. A default judgment is a ruling granted by a judge. Default judgments occur when one party to a lawsuit has failed to do some sort of court-required action. When the person fails to do something that is required of them, that failure has not only prevented the issue from being presented before the court, but also results in the court settling the legal dispute in favor of the compliant party. For example, when a defendant is summoned to appear before the court in a case brought by a plaintiff, but fails to respond to the court's legal order, the judge can rule in favor of a default judgment and thereby decide the case in the plaintiff's favor. The defendant, though not present before the court, is obligated to abide by the court's ruling for default judgment and is subject to any and all punishment requested by the court. And that's what happened here. Patricia George just didn't show up or respond to the lawsuit brought by the law firm, so the law firm received a default judgment in their favor. By the way, the allegation here was that defendant George had embezzled approximately $350,000 from the law firm. Ms. George finally starts to engage in the lawsuit against her, and over the next year and a half, the law firm and defendant Patricia George go through approximately five legal proceedings regarding exactly how much money the defendant actually embezzled. Ultimately, the court determined that the defendant had embezzled approximately $172,291 plus interest. 
The law firm disagreed that it was that low of an amount. The law firm argued to the Michigan Court of Appeals that the trial court should have let a jury decide what the amount of money was that the defendant had embezzled. The law firm argued that because they filed for a jury trial, this decision should have been made by a jury, not the judge. But the Court of Appeals disagreed. The Court of Appeals concedes that, yes, the law firm did follow the proper requirements by asking for and paying the associated fee for a jury. But the court goes back to that waiver language that we've discussed in the past cases, and that Michigan court rule reads as follows. Michigan Court Rule 2-508-D3. A demand for trial by jury may not be withdrawn without the consent expressed in writing or on the record of the parties or their attorneys. The key phrase the Court of Appeals will wrestle with are those six words, quote, in writing or on the record, unquote. The court can immediately determine there was never a writing withdrawing the request for a jury trial. So that really only leaves the on the record portion of the court rule. Did the parties ever withdraw the right to a jury trial on the record? The judges wrote that they found this language to be quite ambiguous. The court viewed the ability to withdraw a jury request could be more than just expressly stating on the record that they were requesting uh, the withdrawal. The court believed that the law firm's actions on the record could also imply a withdrawal. For example, a request for a jury trial could be placed, but when a party fails to appear on the day of the jury trial, a default judgment would obviously be filed against the absent party, which also works as a revocation of a jury trial request. After all, it's not like the party who does show up has to put on their case to the jury. No, a, a default would be entered against the absent party and the jury would be sent home. No need to determine responsibility because the other side just didn't show up. So this court held a waiver of a properly demanded jury trial can be inferred from the conduct of the parties under a totality of the circumstances test. How so, you wonder? Well, look at the conduct of the two parties. Both the plaintiff law firm and the defendant fully and actively participated in the bench trial on the issue of just how much was owed. They did so over a period of 16 months and five separate hearings. Both were fully aware they were debating the amount of money to pay, be paid and everybody showed up with their respective attorneys. Finally, one last observation the court had, and that was the idea of what's called an appellate parachute. The court noted that the law firm can't request a jury trial, then go through the bench trial on how much is owed, only to then appeal the decision of the judge when they don't like the minimal dollar amount that was assessed by the defendant. And for that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals found that based upon the actions of both the plaintiff law firm and the defendant, it was clear the two parties acquiesced to a bench trial and waived the jury trial the plaintiff had initially requested. Before I move on to the next case, let me address why I believe this law firm went the civil route and not the criminal route. My guess would be that although there very well may have been criminal proceedings that were taken in place against Ms. George, at the end of the day, what the plaintiff wants is to get their money back. And the best way to ensure that they get the money that has been embezzled from them is to have Ms. George out working in a garnishment against her salary, thus ensuring that the law firm will get some money. Yes, a 
prosecution could have and perhaps did take place against Ms. George, and yes, likely restitution for the dollar amount could have been ordered to be paid by the defendant, but it's not going to get paid when the defendant is sitting in jail. But if they go through a civil route, they can then take that civil judgment and start taking actions like wage garnishment, tax refund garnishment, and the like. So we're back to another case where the defendant does not believe she got a jury representative of her community. Specifically, it was People versus McKinney, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2003, and it deals with a woman who was arrested for possession of 650 grams of cocaine after the police searched her Grand Rapids home. After her trial, she alleged she was denied her constitutional right to an impartial jury drawn from a fair cross-section of the community. Specifically, she claimed that African Americans were systemically excluded from Kent County's jury pool. Now, again, like the Larry Guy case we talked about, who also alleged the same thing in Calhoun County, the Michigan Court of Appeals relies upon the three aspects to be proven pursuant to the United States Supreme Court case of Duren versus Missouri. But here's the rub. According to the Michigan Court of Appeals, you must bring your allegation before the jury is impaneled and sworn in. And that's not what happened here. Here, the defendant waited until after she lost at the lower court and was found guilty. The court ruled that a review of the case shows the defendant failed to make any objections regarding the composition of her jury. Further, there was no evidence in the lower court record to support defendant's argument. And why was there not sufficient evidence in the court record? Because the defendant never brought it up before trial. Consequently, said this court, they had no means by which to conduct a meaningful review of the allegations. And for that reason, the court denied the defense's request for a new trial. Okay, I've saved the best case for last, and this is a fun one. It is Davis versus Chapman, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2011. This deals with whether a jury trial should have been given to a fellow who was elected to office but then kicked out of his elected position for not living at the address he used for purposes of running for the local school board. Now, I mean, in fairness, why would you lie about where you live just to be on the local school board? But I digress. Now, before I get too far into this, I do have to tell you up front, the fact pattern is truly the most time-intensive part of this case review. Meaning, if you stick with me for the fact pattern, we'll be about four-fifths of the way through the case when we get to the legal piece of it. But I just love the fact pattern in this case so much, I'm going to minimally edit it for time. Defendant Chapman signed an affidavit of identity with the Highland Park clerk in order to run for one of two school board positions in an upcoming election. The defendant claimed on the affidavit of identity that he was a lifetime resident of Wayne County and resided on January 20th, 2010, which is the date that he turned his, his petition in, that he was living at 56 Louise Street in Highland Park. On May 4th, 2010, the election for school board was held and defendant Chapman wins one of those two open school board positions. Haha. <laughs> Plaintiff Davis, who finished in third place 
and 23 votes behind the defendant did not believe that defendant Chapman actually resided at that 56 Louise address. And therefore, the plaintiff believed defendant Chapman did not meet the residency requirements to be on the ballot for election as a school board member. Thus, plaintiff Davis took steps to initiate, took steps to initiate quo warranto proceedings against defendant. Okay, sidebar, what is quo warranto and what's an example of it, Tony? Well, first of all, let's start with the fact that it's Latin for by what authority. Now, originally, the writ of quo warranto was a writ of right for the king against the subject who claimed or usurped any office, franchise, liberty, or privilege belonging to the king. And it was to inquire by what authority this subject would had supported for his claim for saying that he had the right for the office, the franchise, the liberty, or the privilege that he was taking away from the crown. Now, the way it works in 2021, quo warranto is a special form of legal action used to resolve a dispute over whether a specific person has the legal right to hold the public office that he or she occupies. To be clear... Quo warranto is used to test a person's legal right to hold office, not to evaluate the person's performance in office. An evidentiary hearing was held. The crux of the matter was whether defendant resided at 56 Louise Street for 30 days prior to the February 9th filing deadline. Now, obviously, if you can't tell listeners, you must live at your residency 30, for 30 days prior to whatever the filing deadline is for the particular office that you're looking to run for. In this instance, it's uh, the, the school board. Now, Plaintiff Davis gives some proofs during the case, and he intended to show that the house was unoccupied during the relevant times, primarily using witness observations of the property, the status of the utilities for the property, and the defendant's own address, which was filed with the state of Michigan. So, first up, neighbor Holloway, who lived four houses away from the 56 Louise house location, stated that he saw snow accumulate throughout the winter and first saw signs of occupancy in April 2010. Now, the reason that's relevant is, remember, he's, defendant Chapman is saying that he's been living there at least 30 days prior to February of 2010. And, and what happens, listeners, in February? We get snow. So this neighbor was saying, listen, I saw snow accumulating with, with, with no tire tracks or anyone shoveling. So that was one aspect. The plaintiff also traveled by the premises over a hundred times, many of which were between January 20th and February 9th, which would have been, you know, that roughly 30-ish day period leading up to the, to the deadline. And the plaintiff said he never saw any lights or other signs of occupancy at the house. Both plaintiff and a different neighbor on the street testified that they never saw any garbage being taken to the curb on, you know, during the, the neighborhood's garbage pickup day. And again, what is the relevance of that? Well, if you're living in a place, usually you're going to have garbage accumulate and you're usually going to take it out on the days that, that the garbage men come by and pick up your garbage. But that allegedly wasn't happening. Furthermore, plaintiff testified that after a March 11th, 2010 school board meeting, the plaintiff followed defendant to a residence located at 17315 Lincoln Drive in Southfield. Now, remember, the, val the, 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 the relevance of that date, that, that May 11th, would have been after defendant was elected and was starting to serve 
in the role as a school board member. But after the meeting, defendant uh, was allegedly going back to a residence in Southfield. Next, a DTE Energy employee testified that the last known customer at this address in question had services terminated way back in October 2008. Thus, DTE was not actively supplying electricity or gas to defendants' alleged residents, specifically what would have been those January and February months. And if you're a listener uh, that lives in Michigan, you know how cold January and February in Michigan can be. Furthermore, plaintiff presented the testimony of an employee in the Highland Park Water Department. And the water department records had shown that water to the 56 Louise Street had been turned off since November of 2008, and the record showed no water activity anytime after the shutoff. Lastly, plaintiff also relied on the addresses that defendant used in some state records to show that defendant did not live at that 56 Louise Street location. Although defendant had changed his voting registration to reflect the 56 Louise uh, Avenue Street uh, address in, in January of 2010, defendant's concealed weapons permit and vehicle registration still reflected an address of 17315 Lincoln Drive in Southfield. Now, defendant, on the other hand, claimed that he indeed started living at 56 Louise Street in late October of 2009. Defendant acknowledged there was no furnace in the house, so in order to keep warm, he and his landlord-slash-roommate used two electric space heaters. As proof of his tenancy, defendant offered into evidence a lease he signed that commenced on January 1, 2010. Defendant explained that there was no lease agreement for the first couple of months that he had resided on Louise Street because he was, quote-unquote, on hard times. In late January or early February of 2010, a United States postal carrier was informed by his supervisor to resume delivery because the homeowner had requested it. Now, the Postal carrier explained that in addition to the home looking like it was vacant, there was no mailbox present to deliver any mail at until after the request to resume delivery had actually occurred. At the conclusion of the evidentiary hearing on June 9, 2010, the trial court summarized the evidence it had received and noted that, quote, the court has driven by the house yesterday. The house is boarded up. It does not appear to be lived in from the outside, end quote. Ultimately, the court concluded the defendant did not reside at 15 Louise Street during the relevant time period. Nine days later, defendant moved to disqualify the trial court on the basis that the judge impermissibly acquired personal knowledge because he had driven past this house that was at issue. Obviously, and probably to no surprise, the court denied the motion stating that, quote, the fact that I drove by wasn't the basis of my decision, end quote. Afterward, defendant moved for the Wayne County Circuit Chief Judge to disqualify the trial court, but the chief judge denied that motion because defendant failed to show that the trial judge exhibited any bias. On June 30th of 2010, the trial court entered a judgment granting a writ of quo warranto, ordering that the defendant was not entitled to hold the school board position and that all votes cast for him were null and void. Furthermore, the judgment declared that plaintiff, having the next highest vote total, was the duly elected winner of that election. 
The trial court also denied defendant's request for a jury trial, concluding that a determination on the matter had already been made, and in any event, the court did not believe the defendant had a right to a jury trial for this equitable action. Two weeks into plaintiff's new term on the school board, the Michigan Court of Appeals entered an order that did two things. Number one, it stayed the portion of the judgment recognizing plaintiff as one of the election winners. And number two, the court ordered that the board seat must remain empty pending this appeal. The Michigan Court of Appeals found that the action taken by the trial judge was a correct one. The court held that a trial court may hear a quo warranto proceeding or permit the case to proceed to a jury trial. Now, what's not clear in this case is whether or not either party ever asked for a jury trial, but let me share with you a bit of the transcript which was included in the court's opinion. The judge asked the plaintiff's attorney if he was asking for a temporary restraining order against the defendant from going to any more of the school board meetings as a board member. The attorney for the plaintiff said... Actually, what I would like to do, yes, Your Honor, but I'd also like to preserve some evidence today so that we don't have to call these witnesses forward again on the basic factual issue of whether or not defendant was an actual resident of the city of Highland Park prior to the election. We really have no alternative but to ask this court for a ruling on this, because just relying upon the city clerk or the secretary of state would not be fruitful. We need the equitable jurisdiction of this court to actually grant the writ of Quo Aranto. When the attorney for defendant was asked how he would like to proceed, the attorney said, We have four witnesses to testify. I think that will adequately show that he did reside consistent with the law, and I would ask the court to try to resolve this matter today so we can go forward. We'll fully present our issues to the court, and I believe plaintiff's counsel will as well. So we're prepared to go forward, and we'd ask the court to hear testimony, and at that time, I would ask the court to dismiss the petition. And that's where the Michigan Court of Appeals rules against the defendant and his right to a jury trial. The court, relying on the Marshall Lasser versus Patricia George case, notes that the defendant fully participated in the proceedings at which no jury was present. The judges of the Court of Appeals call these actions on the record an expression of agreement implied by the conduct of the parties as an inference of a waiver of a jury trial. And the court notes this is particularly true when looking at the totality of the circumstances. Additionally, the court points out the parties participated in a three-day hearing in which both sides presented evidence. And the plaintiff made clear they weren't seeking just the temporary restraining order, but also that writ of quo warranto. The court made clear that at no time did the defendant object to this matter occurring without a jury. On the contrary, the defendant requested the trial judge to resolve the matter and dismiss this lawsuit. Therefore, the Michigan Court of Appeals held the defendant failed to object to the hearing taking place without a jury, plus voluntarily participated in the jury trial process. The final nail against defendant was his request that the court resolve the issue. Ultimately, the court found this was his waiver to the right to a jury trial. And that's going to do it for episode number 39 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out to me at TonySnyder.com or I'm on Twitter. I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. 
This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.